Players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Delver of Secrets, Brainstorm, Luris of the Dream Den, and so much more, battling head to head in brutal combat. They all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory podcast is sponsored by Cardboard Live, Bosch and Roll on YouTube, The Ribbon University, and TheEpicStorm.com. Hello, everyone. Whenever you are, wherever you are, welcome to Eternal Glory, episode 21, which we have dubbed Kaiju and You. I'm Phil Gallagher, joined by Bryant Cook and Brian Koval. How are you all doing tonight? Doing well. How are you? Uh, pretty well, all things considered. You know, working down the rabbit hole of Animal Crossing addiction, just like everyone else. I dodged that bullet by not purchasing a Switch. As I've talked about in the last episode, uh, I spent my Switch money on a Eureka, so I've dodged Animal Crossing. I've been playing a different handheld game the last few weeks. I actually decided to download an emulator for iPhone and played a lot of Pokemon Blue. Uh, I've been saying for years now that if they ever put Pokemon Blue into the App Store, I would gladly pay $20 or $30 for it. Well, somebody on YouTube showed me how to install an emulator and... uh, I spent like 46 hours and three days and beat it. It was a lot of fun. Beat it like the Elite Four or 150? I did not 150. Uh, I released uh, Kabuto before. I I really forgot that I needed him to evolve for 150. So I just did the three legendaries in Mewtwo. Gotcha. Good enough. I remember my blue version as a child. It took 72 hours to 150 it. And, and I was in, like, fifth grade or whatever, so I'm sure as an adult, if I, I thought about it, if I planned my route, I could do better, but... Back in those days, we had paper strategy guides, if you even had that. Yeah, you had to know someone with nice parents if you wanted to know, like, where to catch a Meowth. It was rough. I only recently found out where to get Dratini, and I, I never got one as a kid. And Dragonite's my favorite Pokemon, so I was like, I'm going to get a Dragonite. And then I just ground until I ended up getting there. But it doesn't evolve until, like, 56, which is pretty high. Were you in the Safari Zone to find that? Alright, yeah. Some things just stick with you. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we should uh, talk about some uh, non-Pokemon Blue things. Or we could talk about Pokemon Blue all night. I'm fine with that, too. Yeah, Magic the Gathering is cancelled. We're going to talk about Pokemon Blue for the rest of this podcast. Buckle up two hours of content coming your way. We could totally do it. But how about donations, though? Alright, fine. Alright, Marshall Arthurs, uh, fan favorite of the podcast, donated a very large sum of money to the podcast, but He donated a little bit extra and requested that video that we promised him two episodes ago of Phil shaving his head. So, uh, Phil, I would like to get that to Marshall ASAP. Let me know when you would like to get, you know, the clippers out and we'll get you a haircut. I'll uh, uh, see when I can pencil that in. I have a lot going on. I need to, like, 
review the uh, erotic TES fan fiction that Bryant sent me. Um, that takes priority, so maybe once I get that done. It's going to be a long time. That's a very thick book. <laughs> With several C's. <laughs> Uh, the next donator was Henrik Korkuk. Uh, thank you, Henrik. I believe this is like your second or third time recently donating, so we appreciate your continued support. Uh, message us. Let us know if there's a topic you would like covered or maybe something we can do for you. We just greatly appreciate your contributions. And then I believe the last person is a first-time supporter. I apologize if I'm wrong, but Daniel Becker, thank you very much for your contribution. As always, uh, the support is very much uh, appreciated, and we love to hear feedback from you all. You know, whatever it is, let us know. We we love sitting here talking about magic. Love it. Let us know what we can do to make it better. And as always, the money isn't for us. It's for paying our terrific editor, Phil Blackman. You can find Phil on Twitter at Force of Phil. The money all goes to Phil. We don't take any of it out. Any money we do take out goes directly towards paying for the SoundCloud hosting for our podcast. Uh, maybe in the future we'll do something for the fans or I don't know. But we have a little bit saved up in case we ever had a dry spell, but we do appreciate your contributions. So, Brian, what have you been up to other than playing Pokemon since uh, last time we talked? Well, in our last episode, I said I was pretty close to having the old lady cut my hair. Uh, the day after, before it was even live, I had her pull out the clippers and give me a homemade haircut. It wasn't nearly as bad as I thought. I know I sent you both photos. It turned out pretty well, I think. It it really did. I was surprised. I'm going yeah, to try like, to hold off for as long as I can. You were saying, Brian? Uh, yeah, that the haircut came out pretty good. Um, I, I, I'm... I got a haircut like pretty recently before lockdown started. So like, but I'm starting to get those like shaggy edges, but I'm not feeling uncomfortable yet. So I, I, I'll probably be another couple weeks before I have to do something crazy. Maybe it'll be me shaving my head for Marshall instead of Phil. I would like that. Uh, one <laughs> Phil thing likes that I will that too. say is that like your scissors that you just have laying around the house are not sharp enough to cut your hairs. I found out. So don't try to do that. Uh, some advice for some of you that may not have figured that out yet is your like classic Elmer's orange scissors will just rip your hair out. Yeah, that sucks. I, I learned that in college trying to uh, trim myself up dorm life style. <laughs> uh, so uh, Sunday was the first nice weather day in Syracuse. It got up to like the high 60s. And after scrubbing out of the uh, showcase challenge, I opened up all my windows in my office and decided to finish the project that I talked about when we first started up again, which was spray painting uh, the floor radiators in here. The previous owner of the house, I don't know if this was the first room they did it in or the last, but they nailed in the radiators into the wall. So you can't like unscrew them like every other room in the house and then take them outside and spray paint them. So I was in my office. I opened up all the windows, put on my like COVID mask and just got like super high spray painting these radiators. Uh, but they turned out really nice. I'm pretty happy. My do-it-yourself projects have been much less ambitious than that. I uh, I assembled some furniture where I had to like slide in uh, a little bin into a plastic thing. That's that's about the extent of what I've done. That's also manly, though. Very yes. Don't let anyone deny it. 
Yeah, I need to paint my deck. Uh, last summer, we started repainting our deck. Uh, I bought the house last year. We've been in it for about a year and a half, and the deck was just like barn red. And it's it's a covered deck, and there was like old vinyl siding covering the corner of it, so it was like kind of inside, but for sure not inside. And last summer, we ripped down the vinyl siding and started to repaint it. And we ran out of money for that project, like right around the time we should have stopped painting for the year anyway. So I have a half white, half barn red deck right now. So <laughs> so Boros life, apparently. But at some point when the weather holds, uh, we're going to finish that up pretty soon. That's my next big DIY. So we did something similar last year. Uh, we have a back deck as well. It was also a nasty red color. We chipped it up and did all that good stuff then we started to stain it but it got cold too close to when we finished staining so in the springtime the stain never really soaked in so it's been chipping up unfortunately so we're gonna have to redo a lot of that yeah but uh the last few weeks i've been playing a lot of moto so i I may have come off as a little braggy in the last episode or so i'm told uh well that quickly ended i've hit one of the worst losing streaks i've had in some time on uh, magic online uh, it doesn't matter if it's like a league or a PTQ, super qualifiers, prelims. I just can't seem to buy wins. Uh, a lot of it's like bad beats and not me playing poorly. I mean, I have made a couple mistakes here and there. No one's perfect. But uh, it just seems like people have my number recently. I guess I'll I'll cut in there because I've had similar results. So last podcast episode, I was I was hyping up Enchantress as something that I thought could potentially be very good in the current metagame. And then there was this subtle shift that ruined everything that I loved. So Burrow's been picking up a lot in the past week or so. And as a result, people are trying Leovolt, which is brutal against Enchantress. So I played three leagues with Enchantress and got paired against Leovold in eight of my 15 rounds and put up back-to-back-to-back two-three finishes with Enchantress. Uh which was really demoralizing. Yeah. I have noticed that Blue Red Delver has also been picking up Narset for a similar reason. Yeah, um, I ran into that, and uh, it also beat me. <laughs> well, I don't know how any of that feels, because I am crushing with Arosa on Magic Online. Uh, I have stayed solid at an 80% win rate over eight leagues, uh, which isn't like a shitload of matches, but it's 40. And... I have six four ones, a single three two, and a single five zero for like the solid eighty percent. It's a four one machine with a small margin of error, and I, I'm really into the deck. Uh, I I wrote a primer and sideboard guide on my personal Patreon uh, that some people have been checking out, but I'm into it. It's doing a lot of good things right now. Uh, I I've officially hung up my monk tokens for Charles the Void until further notice. I know that we got paired, and I thought that I had beaten you game two after winning game one. So I had started talking my trash talk into the Moto chat. And I was like, yeah, I'm just going to Burning Wish for Grape Shot and end Brian's career right here. And then, like, before I could even, like, go to cast the Grape Shot, because I keep my sideboard open, the Grape Shot wasn't in there. I'm like, well, where is it? And then I remember that you encrypted it away, and then I had just lost the match, and it all sank in. All at one moment, and I was just like, "Man, this feels so bad." And then, of course, you just crushed me game three. That match was a roller coaster because I was watching Netflix with like sixty percent of my brain and playing Magic with the other forty, and I didn't look at my opponent's name. 
and I mauled a six and bottomed the second chalice and then realized it was Bryant Cook, where is definitely a person you want two chalices in your hand. Uh, so what ended up happening game one is I slammed chalice on zero and then like a couple turns of sculpting later, he was able to like veil of summer and then cast all his zeros and win. Where if I had chalice on zero and one, the game was over on the spot. But I fucked that up. And then in game two, like you said, you uh, you had to spew your grape shot early to clear my Karn. And I just had a Tormod script laying around when you pulverized. And I just popped it because it, it was free. And your grape shot was gone. And then you just like started storming and storming. Did you have any mountains left in your deck? I exiled three of them with the crypt. Like I had killed one with Karn and then you sacked two for pulverize. I don't know the list. Do you play four mountains? Uh, I only recently added the th- the third mountain, which is a topic I wanted to mention. Is uh, I am now referring to myself as the Taiga King. Uh, I've added in a third red source, so I'm now playing Taiga, Volcanic Island, and Badlands to help better support Pulverize. Uh, basically, Eldrazi's everywhere, and the 14th land plus a third red source makes Pulverize more reliable. Um, if the if the most common Chalice deck isn't Moonstompy, then you probably want a third red. And Taiga does both being the third red and the second green for Veil of Summer and Carpet. Is that is that worth a crown? I, I mean, we we had a little we started this conversation before we went live, but the Taiga King, how about like the Taiga Cub? I I have five Black Border Taigas now. I had four, realized none of them were German, and then just bought a fifth Taiga. I don't know. I think with, like, uh, Jarvis and, like, Dave Long and Kurt Spies, like, existing on Earth, I don't think you can be the Tiger King yet. A lot, of, a lot of people need to quit magic first. If you've watched Tiger King, the other guy, Doc Antler, has way more tigers than Joe Exotic. You can be Carol Baskins. All right. I'll take it. <laughs> All right. Uh. Tiger King conversation is concluded for now. I'm I'm banging the gavel on that. All right, then, Brian, what else has been up in your life? Uh, so Pennsylvania schools have officially closed for the year, uh, which I am not surprised by that happening, but I was surprised by the reaction of a lot of my coworkers. Like, we were told at the beginning of March, like, uh, schools are closed for two weeks. And it seems like a large number of my coworkers actually believed that, like, all right, in 14 days, this will all be done and we'll just be back to work. And, like, then it got pushed back a week and a lot of them were like, oh, another week. This sucks. And, like, the whole time I was like, things are getting worse, not better. We're not going back. And, like, one of my teammates, when it was, like, announced, she, like, messaged our, our group chat and was like, oh, my God, I'm I'm going to vomit. It's like, I came to terms with this a month ago. Welcome to reality i i don't want to shit on wishful thinking but like people out there just like oh yeah it's two weeks off things will be normal like use a little bit of critical thinking in your life it'll it'll benefit you in the long run yikes but my my working from home is slowing down uh we had a lot of parents at first who were like yes give us tons of material weekly meeting and i want email contact and i want to call you twice a week and now everyone's like, yeah, that's a lot of work. Nah. So like, uh, and I'm in special ed. So like anything that I hand over has to be done by the parent. So I'm basically have to teach a person who is not an educator by trade to educate a person who is def- difficult to educate. And 
a lot of them are are not up to the task, and I don't blame them. Uh, I I went to a lot of school to do what I do, and these parents have other kids. They have their own jobs, and a lot of them are realizing, like, yeah, this is too much. Can't do it. Yeah, I I don't uh, I don't envy your position. Um, I have a handful of special needs kids, and I'm trying to do group projects virtually with them, and uh, it's it's going to be challenging. I've already done a whole bunch of accommodations and adaptations to help them out with it, uh, but I can't imagine what it's got to be like when you're a parent and it's just like good luck. Right. Yeah. And and these parents, obviously, like they know how to handle their kids. They live with them. Like, uh, I'm not going to pretend the six hours a day I get with them compares to the the 18 hours a day plus weekends they spend with them. Like they know how to live their lives with their kids at home. Uh, Nobody's like drowning over there, but educating them, like actually furthering their education, teaching them new skills is is a very different ask than maintaining. So uh, it. Yeah, that's that's tough for everyone, and uh, a lot of there's not a lot of expectation on me right now because yeah, nobody can do what I do. So that that's it's a mixed bag. Like it's cool for me; I don't have to do any work, and I'm still getting paid. But at the same time, it's like the kids the kids are suffering. But I don't want to be a bummer on this podcast, so I'll change the subject. Uh, I've been before we switch. Do you mind talking to my job to see if they'll slow down too? <laughs> uh, uh, don't isn't your job internet based anyway? <laughs> Just like in the normal life, it is. <laughs> then, <laughs> then no, you're probably busier than ever. Yep, no chance. Uh, have you considered teaching special ed instead of whatever you do? Maybe uh, you I was going to make, make a, a career right move there, but uh, it's. But referring to playing TS, I'm just going to shut up. Let's move on to the next thing. Yeah, good call, good call. Uh, so I'm still into Borderlands 3. Uh, I've talked about that like three weeks in a row now, and the game's still great. I have beat it twice on story mode, and I just got a sweet uh, character mod that when you run and slide, you poop out rockets. Like heat-seeking rockets. Four of them shoot out of your butt as you slide, and <laughs> I've been having a lot of fun butt-rocketing people. So that's all I have to say about that. Uh, l- like you, uh, we had a, a beautiful Sunday uh, here in Pittsburgh. We went hiking on the uh, the Bushy Run Battleground, which is a uh, British versus Native American battleground from the mid-1600s. That's uh, apparently 20 minutes from my house. And we hiked around on that, and I read all the plaques. But yeah, yeah, uh, living in a state that existed during colonial times allows for those sort of things. Uh, so Sunday when it was nice here, I'm trying to record the first two rounds of the Super Qualifier before I dropped, and I'm in the middle of losing round two. I'm obviously not in a very good mood being 0-2, and behind me, I just heard bird calls. I'm like, what? So I like poked behind my green screen to look out the window, and there's just like this 80-year-old woman walking down Suburbia Street. Like I live in like a pretty suburban area, just doing bird calls was the strangest thing i was like does she expect like birds to like talk back to her when you're in like a suburb of syracuse new york i don't know it just seemed very strange did did you squawk back i wish the other day i i was uh driving around uh i i had a doctor appointment and then i had to pick up a prescription and then i went out for food which is like three reasons to leave the house which is three more than i've had in a month so I was sort of relishing being out like on the road again. And there was a gopher just in the road. 
and I, I rolled up on it and it just like lazily looked at me and then started to just lazily walk out of the street like like it forgot what a car was in the last month. So I rolled down my window and I screamed at it and it, <laughs> then it ran away. So I want to keep the natural order despite us not being out in the environment right now. Nature's trying to reclaim everything. Take back yeah. what is hers. Well, if you look at my deck and shed, the gophers have already reclaimed everything. I don't think I ever had control of it, honestly. All right, Phil. So uh, what have you been up to the last few weeks? Uh, so I had my failed run with Enchantress, which I think started out with beautiful theory. So when I picked up Enchantress, I thought that I wanted to try to accelerate the deck and make it a little bit faster than it was. So I initially tried Chrome Mox, which was something that Julian suggested to me and found that it was clunky. So then I started trying out Carpet of Flowers and Exploration, which were both like really, really good. Um, uh, Enchantress really wants to have three mana on turn two as much as possible. And normally you only have eight cards that let you do that. So adding in a virtual four more copies of things that let me hit three mana on turn two for Enchantress's presence, Green Sun for one of your two drops, or an Enchantress plus a one drop was like super, super important. But I could not get a win to save my life. Um, I went either three or four leagues in a row uh, with two, three results or worse, which is a rarity for me. And it was absolutely demoralizing. So I, I think I'm on the plan of shelving Enchantress for the foreseeable future. Um, more so what are you considering playing instead of Enchantress? Um, whatever people bribe me to play right now. Um, I don't, I don't know. Um, I'm not feeling the passion for any one particular deck right now. I think a lot of the things that I was excited about aren't great. Um, I, in my downtime, I think I'm going to try a few Erosa leagues and, uh, see what I think of it. I've watched a couple of Brian's videos and the deck looks pretty impressive and like definitely the sort of thing that's up my alley. Well, you're in luck if you're not in love with any decks because there's a new set coming and this is the spoiler episode of our podcast. So we'll Whoa. have lots of ideas by the end of this. See what you did there. But uh, before we get to that, uh, Phil, you want to talk about the event that we're both in? Yeah. Um, so Bryant and I, as well as... Oh God, how many people are actually in this event? 30 other individuals. Yeah, all right. And 30 other individuals... Uh, Legacy Stalwarts are playing in this Legacy Double Dash event, uh, which is run by Schultz Cubed, uh, Timothy Schultz. And it is going to be a Thursday night Legacy event featuring various decks pitted against each other in an effort to figure out what is the best deck. Um, so Bryant obviously will be representing TES, and I'll be representing uh, D&T, although... Um, Admittedly, it's kind of DNT in big air quotes, and uh, Bryant has already whoa, whoa, whoa. made fun of me. I have a, a bit. philosophical question for you. What is death and taxes? Oh, hold on. I, I had something prepared for this. I forgot. Is to pull it like it up, seven though. free force of wills and Thalia's and other things? Um, okay, here we go. I got it. <clears throat> death and taxes is a set of lockpicks and tumblers, like a rogue or burglar might have. Magic decks all have weak spots, but their speed and agility effectively hide those weaknesses under lock and key. To exploit them, you just have to get past their locks. 
Tough I'm going to thumbs down that one, Phil. Okay. That, I didn't feel like that was a very good definition of what is death and taxes. Oh, you dodged I'm into it. I'm into it. Trying to you, avoid Phil. the question. All right. Um, yeah. So what is D&T is actually like a super legitimate question because um, both XJ Cloud and I have registered super questionable deck lists that are like arguably not even death and taxes. Um, uh, XJ Cloud's deck list has a whole bunch of blue cards and force of wills in it. Um, my deck list features main deck, Ether Sworn Canonist, Squadron Hawk, um, Vryn Wingmare, all sorts of other shenanigans. I think I have four Remorseful Clerics in it. Uh, because the metagame that we were presented with was super bad for Death and Taxes, and Death and Taxes is already a bad deck in the current meta more generally. So it's just like the double whammy of like, all right, if we want to be competitive, we need to submit like these hyper warped deck lists. Like, I have Path to Exile's main deck. So I know that the metagame's fixed because it's 32 different archetypes. Or, I'm sorry, 16 different archetypes with two players from each archetype. But I felt like uh, the decks were almost chosen a little poorly. Like, Maverick's not in there. But instead, we have four-color Snowco and then four-color Miracles. And uh, when asked, the definition was... The, the definition of the difference between them was Terminus. But the Miracles deck is only playing one Terminus because they were told they had to. Um, because it's essentially the same deck, and I feel like there's a lot of decks that could have been selected that would have better represented the, the Legacy metagame than a couple of the inclusions, in my opinion. So what you're saying is that when presented in, with a competitive platform and prizes, that gamers are going to game? Gamers are going to game. Yeah, that sounds right. I, I think the idea for the event is super cool. Um I think we should have postponed the event for another week or two to kind of like get things a little more solidified and good to go. But this was kind of one of those things like, no, man, let's start making content. Let's just do it. Um, and I'm excited to be a part of it. Yep. And I got to tell you guys, uh, I, I co-host a podcast with two of the members of the league. I live on Twitter, like literally check it a thousand times a day, probably. And I didn't even know this was happening. So the the shotgun nature of how quick this came together was clear to even me who was not involved. All right. So uh, feedback on the last episode, we got very little uh, across all platforms, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, we got a couple Reddit comments, but they were mostly just fluffing content uh, comments, but we got one real comment from ape of justice. Normally, we don't read comments this long on air, but because we only have the one, maybe we should. I don't know if you guys are up to it or if we should just uh, say what his comment was about. All right. Another very enjoyable episode. One thought uh, with regards to the comparison of Blue Green Omni and Doomsday. Doomsday has far fewer cards in its list that are usually dead without its namesake combo piece. Almost everything in the Doomsday list can be played to help progress their game besides Thassa's Oracle and Lion's Eye Diamond, I suppose. This will also help make mulligans more consistently keepable, so you don't have superfluous win cons in your opener. Also with regards to Miracles-esque cyborg decisions. Having played a few games with uh, Romario and Calls, Delver so far is one of the deck's worst, worst matchups, as rotating into a super mentor list which can go over the top of Delver while also not pressuring your own life total in the same manner that the pre-board list does changes the matchup quite dramatically. What do you guys think about this? This is Ape of Justice on Reddit. So I'm I'm trying to understand the 
tail end of that there. So they're saying, just making sure I've got this correct, they're saying that even though you can rotate into this mentor list, it doesn't actually make the Delver matchup good. Am I understanding that correctly? That no, is exactly I, what they're saying. Is that what they're saying? Yeah. I believe so. I thought they were saying that the transformational sideboard has made the change, has made the difference. Uh, maybe I'm not understanding it correctly, then. Okay, okay, I see. So Delver is one of the worst matchups. As such, rotating into a mess mentor list changes the matchup quite a bit dramatically. Yeah, yeah. Okay, they're, they're, super, super they're, long They're sentence. co-signing the transformational sideboard that we pointed out last week. Like the the doomsday list that did well that we talked about last week just boarded into straight up miracles, and uh, that I mentioned like what a big brain thing that is and how hard it must be to sideboard with that deck, and I think that they are just like co-signing that. And and to their larger point, doomsday can do that, and Omni can't do that. Yeah. Okay. That makes a that makes a lot of sense to me. I was just trying to follow the grammar live, uh, and I got lost in it. Yeah, yeah. Had, there, there's a lot of words. Yeah. I had someone message me saying that I was a little hard on the Doomsday deck. I don't think Doomsday's bad by any means. I think it's a completely fine and uh, reasonably tiered deck to play. I just, I'm very high on the Blue Green Omni deck, and that's not a slight against Doomsday. I just think that they exist in a very similar space. Um, so if you thought I was being hard on Doomsday, I apologize. Uh, I just think that the Blue Green Omni deck is one of the best things you can be doing in Legacy. I do agree that if you're going to play Blue Green Omni, more of its deck is dedicated to the combo pieces. But I I don't know how much more, I would honestly say. Just because you're playing stuff like Street Wraith and Edge of Autumn, and you could say that those aren't combo pieces. But the honestly, if you draw an Edge of Autumn, is it going to feel like a combo piece? Probably. Uh, I get that it's not four Chantels and three Omniscience or whatever the numbers are. Uh, but I think they're more similar than people would like to admit. And just as another follow-up there, um, a lot of times it's easier when talking to just make a, a blanket statement rather than to go into all of the nuances. So like I'm going around saying like DNT is a crap deck, when in reality what I mean is like it's, it's clearly a tier two choice. It's not one of the better things in the metagame. You know, there's other similar strategies that are slightly overlapping that are probably better, but you don't want to use that many words every time that you say that. Um, so, you know, if we say, yeah, Doomsday is fine, you know, there's, there's more nuance to it there, but we don't always go into yeah. it. Yeah, I, I saw heard someone say something once at a tournament that just stuck with me forever. Like, this was probably 10 years ago. Like, they were playing, like, uh, against, like, some tier one deck at the time, whatever it was, like, counterbalance top Tarmogoyf pile or whatever, and the opponent was doing something just totally brewy, and the brew beat this tier one deck and uh the the brewer was kind of like oh yeah sorry my, my stuff just came together perfectly which is like a weird thing to do anyway but you know that aside and like the guy w who had lost with his tier one deck was just shrugging he's like we're all playing legacy and what he meant by that is that you can do something weird or different or tier two tier three something no one's ever seen before but the power level of the cards is there like Phil of all people, like with his uh, meme stream, like just casting shifting ceratops on turn two, like no, nobody's no like uh, like Bryant wouldn't have thought of that, but Phil's over there doing it, and <clears throat> and it's all legacy. Like I don't, I got my 
just my stuff crushed by a pair of shifting ceratopses out of Arosa uh, when I was on Arosa recently. Like uh, my my only out was like find a Karn, wish for ensnaring bridge, and hope it holds. Like that was literally my only way to beat these shifting ceratopses. And like someone had to make that move, and the man is there to power the things out. Like we're all playing legacy, so uh, if we say a deck sucks or one is better than the other, they're all legacy decks. Now that I am playing two green sources, Phil, can you give me some uh, words on playing Shifting Ceratops? Maybe I can slide that into TES. Uh, transformational sideboards do work sometimes. You, you never know. But, like, you're already going to put one creature, one more creature in your deck. So, like, maybe we don't want to push it, you know. Well, I'm going to be playing creatures? I, I think yeah, you sh- are. Shifting Ceratops, if you board in Ceratops, then you can't have a companion anymore. Your companion doesn't like that Ooh, it's a so let, let's fast forward we, we keep hinting that there are new cards coming let let's get there we, i think we have one more thing to talk about uh before we start talking about the spoilers which is last cast we talked about a paper event in japan with like a hundred and something players at it and we were like is that smart is that safe is japan that that like safe from covid right now and like the next day uh the Haruya game store posted on Twitter like one of our staff have tested positive for COVID nineteen to prevent the spreading. We're closing the tournament center for two weeks. It's like, okay, guys, well done. <laughs> uh, that's uh, kind of rough, but to be expected, right? I know that James Shu of Humans of Magic uh, posted on Twitter that events in China have started up again, like local weeklies. Uh, he posted a couple photos of the event. While it looked like most people had masks on and a couple of people had gloves, there was people in the background with no protective gear at all. So maybe things are starting to turn around in China. I'm not really sure. Uh, I don't live there, but it's great news if it is. Yeah, I mean, uh, Wuhan, the the original source of COVID-19 is unlocked. They're out of lockdown, so they must be feeling okay. Either that or the, the Chinese state media is is flexing for the world, which it's probably somewhere in between, honestly. Uh, if we're we're being cynical or realistic, depending on your definition, but uh, yeah, Wuhan's out of lockdown, so that's that's pretty sweet. All right, so uh, why don't we talk a little bit about what companions are and how they work before we get into specific uh, dreamy nightmare companions? All right, um, so s- starting it off, having a companion in your deck kind of means that you have added plus one to your starting hand. Uh, it, it's kind of in air quotes there. It's not technically in your hand, but at some point in the game, you're going to have access to a very important card in your deck with 100% consistency, and that's something we haven't really seen before, and that's probably going to be incredibly powerful. Phil, where is it? Uh, So it starts out in your sideboard, and it is going to end up being revealed at the beginning of the game. So it's like a commander. It is. It is our constructed commander. We've we've gone full circle. Is your companion revealed, or do you just declare, I have a companion? It is revealed, and with the rules that were announced yesterday... You are to reveal your companion before the die roll, which I think is super interesting because I don't know how they'll do that on Moto. 
Like, I don't, because when you join a match on Magic Online, it automatically decides who's on the player of the draw. So I wonder if it's going to be different on Magic Online or if they're going to, I can't imagine that they're going to put in the resources to recode that. Probably also, not. Also, like, uh, and just like on the, the realistic side, does that matter? Like, is any one of these companions going to push Manalist Dredge somewhere? Like, if you win the die roll, you're going first, whether your opponent has a companion or not. Like, I, I'm not sure that that matters but but figuring it out for magic online is certainly interesting sort of of note since these are revealed at the very beginning of the game before any game actions that has really interesting implications on mulligan decisions because if your opponent reveals a uh, companion you might have a very good idea of what deck they are on and then you get game one mulligan information which is usually only something you get if you're playing against someone on Magic Online that you're familiar with, or you're playing against some relatively well-known deck specialist. Right, and like early in the tournament, that's a big deal. Like uh, in any like thirty-ish uh, person tournament, which I don't know what Legacy's like where you live, but thirty-ish people is about what I'd expect locally. Like by the end of round two, I probably know what everyone in the room is on at least in like the top tables the people around me the people who are winning like i I don't try to memorize the whole field but certainly the people who run one round one at least like i look around i like match faces with decks so i don't know if other people expend that energy i I take notes uh, on it yeah scouting is absolutely part of paper tournaments so uh having game one like round one game one mulligan decisions definitely interesting and I like that the way the mechanic works is that you can't bluff it. Like, I can't reveal Luris and be like, I have a companion, but then I'm just playing like miracles or something. Because uh, in order for it to be your companion, your deck has to meet the build criteria. So I wanted to save this because we hadn't revealed it yet, but uh, we will discuss Luris of the Dream Den. But more importantly, I, I almost disagree with Brian's statement a tiny bit because I think that you can create false narratives. So normally if your opponent reveals a Luris, there's a pretty good chance they're on the Epic Storm or Ad Nauseam Tendrils. However, if I'm, let's say I'm someone that just wants to get a small edge, and I mean, this would be a game one edge and not much else, but maybe game one is all you need. Is So let's say I'm playing Burn. Burn already fits the criteria of playing Luris. So if I have a Luris on my board, Game one, I can reveal that maybe you think I'm a combo deck. You mulligan the Force of Will. So now you're on five cards, and I just go Basic Mountain Goblin Guide Swing. That's a pretty big edge, knowing that you're down to five cards, and I'm playing Burn. That's really interesting design space to explore. I yeah, I mean, the Burn, deck would, the Burn deck would have to make a small concession to that. They don't get Sulfuric Vortex, which is one of the reasons to be Legacy Burn, uh, but... I mean, yeah, th- there are certain decks that are close enough to the criteria that if you think bluffing that you're uh, a storm deck is worth doing. I guess revealing Luris is a pretty big bluff. Uh, like, like the the decks that could possibly companion this card are pretty small. Like, uh, like any blue deck just can't do it. Like, if you have a planeswalker in your deck, if you have any sort of like hateful enchantment, if you have like a creature that's bigger than a Tarmogoyf on mana cost, like we're you specifically just can't do talking it. about Luris right here, just to clarify. Yeah, there yeah. are plenty of companions out there. The full set's been released at this point. I believe there's 12, 10? 
There's ten. There's one for every color pair. Okay. So there are other companions out there. I know that some people are pretty high on the uh, four hybrid blue-black, blue-black one. When it comes into play, you mill the top four and you put a creature into play from your graveyard. Kairuda. Yeah. So some people like that with uh, Lion's Eye Diamond. They're talking about it and possibly a dread shell with changing some of your converted mana costs. I don't know. Um, We're going to talk about individual cards later on, right? We're just talking about companion, the mechanic now. Let's talk about these beasties when we get to them. Before we get too far off the rails here. All right, so we, we talked about how they're an eight-card hand if you're willing to meet the build criteria for your deck. Uh, the the criteria are things like only even casting costs. Uh, cards can't have two of the same mana cost. Uh, every creature in your deck is among a set of creature types. like uh, Things like that. Those are the, the build requirements. Uh, they, they provide a ton of consistency. In addition to the eight-card hand thing, all of the companions, except for Loris, meet their own criteria. So you could put three in your main deck and one as a companion if you just really want to draw this thing. Uh, if your companion is part of a combo that's pretty huge, uh, like you can aggressively mulligan because you're guaranteed to have like whatever your opening hand is plus the companion. And uh, it's in a... Yeah, okay. and, and just to follow that up, since it's not in your hand and it's just sitting in your sideboard, that's a zone that people don't get to interact with, right? So you get to keep one of your potential combo pieces or important cards just sitting in your sideboard until you need it. And it's just immune to any sort of proactive interaction. And that's super cool. And again, something we haven't really seen before. I wonder if they might change like a card like Pull from Eternity so that it can interact with that zone. Not that I think it's like a huge game space, but it'd be cool if you could like pull someone's air quote commander to their graveyard or something yeah like that gets into like the weird space that uh, as a burning wish player i'm sure you're well aware of this this design space but like uh there was a time where exile was called removed from the game and it wasn't a game zone it was removed from the game so exile changing that to exile was a functional change because exile is a game zone so you used to be able to Burning Wish for things that had been exiled. So like it used to be like a storm line to like Burning Wish, which exiles itself. Then you wish for that wish. Then you wish for that wish. And every two mana adds one storm. But the the functional change, because exile is a game zone, it's no longer outside the game. And something like Pull from Eternity or Rift Sweeper interacts with the exile zone. Uh, it used to interact with the re- move from the game zone. Uh, but the sideboard has never been removed from the game or exile it's just out it is literally outside of the game it's like the the uncard like (laughs) removed from the game like no no super removed from the game zone beyond the exile zone so i think games back then used to be a lot more interesting like for example let's say you were playing a knight of the reliquary deck and your opponent cast a sword supply shares you can now living wish for that knight that had been swords or you could put a card underneath chrome mox that you didn't want to get discarded and then you could burning wish for that card immediately and put it back to your hand uh there's a lot of like cool interactions i remember one specifically with uh the blue or the white black artifact card that tucked a card underneath it um scholar and then burning wishing for the tendrils that was underneath it uh so there's like a lot of cool stuff that you could do and i think it's just like an interesting part of magic that was removed because the rules wanted to be cleaner like i don't think 
there was a whole lot to be gained. I'm not sure if I'm prepared to go down that rabbit hole, whether that it's better or worse for the game, but it's certainly functionally different in, in a pretty large way. So all of these new companion cards have some sort of deck building cost associated with them. And you can't just shove these things willy-nilly into your deck and just have them fit. But there are going to be many decks that don't have to adapt very much or at all to play some of these commanders. So the various storm decks are going to be very happy with Luris, for example, without having to make any changes to their decks. Is is Luris the only one that is just like easy to shove into an existing shell? Like everything else you do have to make some some reasonable effort. Um I'm not entirely sure. I feel like that's true at least for higher tiered legacy decks. Yeah, I mean, maybe someone out there with their brew just happens to only be playing odd colored cards and they get Obosh the Prey Piercer for free. But uh, it, among like tiered legacy decks that you've heard of, uh, I, I think Luris is the only freebie and only in Storm decks. Like, there's talk about like Gyruda Bomberman, I think, that doesn't have to make too many changes, but like still ha- has to make some changes. But I don't. I don't know. I haven't delved too far down those rabbit holes. Yeah, we're about to talk about most of the playable ones anyway by name. So l- let's save that for there. Uh, do Do we have anything to say about the mechanic before we get into the cards? This is going to be a nightmare. Uh, yes, there is going to be a cat nightmare present for a while, though I don't think it's going to make games an actual nightmare. All right, let's just do it. Luris of the Dream Den. Best card in the set. Anyone want to argue that? (laughs) (laughs) It it is likely to be the most impactful card in Legacy in the set. Uh, I agree with that. I think it's honestly a little bit overhyped. I I do think it's very, very good. Um, But I think rumors of Legacy's demise are pretty, uh, you know, overrated. I think it's going to give combo decks a unique angle to help grind better. But people are talking like the format's already over. Um, I don't think Lurus is that good. You, I think something a lot of people missed when they were reading Lurus the first time is these cards that Lurus casts aren't free. Like people are like, yeah, you just get to bring back defense grid every turn. Sure. But that also means that you're destroying my defense grid every turn and I'm paying two mana every turn. Um, like, how's this happening? Um, to be fair, the uh, Lion's Eye Diamonds that you're going to be getting back are free. I will agree with that, but that also means I'm discarding my hand every turn. Or maybe I'm getting a Lotus Petal, so it's making a mana every turn. I'm not saying that this effect isn't good, I'm just saying that it's not format ending. Oh yeah, totally yeah, agreed. So so, so games out of a Storm deck where Luris really matters, something's gone wrong, right? Like, that's not the line. Like, you're not like Dark Rit- I guess you could like Dark Ritual Luris go and just like have something in play but like that's not what you want to do with your dark ritual like like if you need to like dark ritual luris cast led from the graveyard go how'd that led get to the graveyard you got thought seized or you got disrupted in combo like it's a rebuild card it's not a a plate like a an active card you want to play am i wrong for the most part i think you're right i think there are some creative lines uh, that you would proactively play Luris. For example, let's say my opening hand 
is like one land, two lion's eye diamonds, and a wish claw. Hypothetically, I can play my land, play two lion's eye diamonds, play Lurus, uh, using one of the lion's eye diamonds, and then uh, crack the other lion's eye diamond, put claw into play, and then next turn I can put lion's eye diamond into play, and that pretty much gives me the free mana to echo. Like, I won't need to peel land off the top in order to do anything. But you also lose out on, like, if you drew a land for turn, you just flat out win the game with Ad Nauseam instead. So, yeah, like, that's powerful. Uh, it, it gives you small lines where, like, if your hands are super close, you can echo instead of just, like, killing them with Ad Nauseam if you get a tiny bit lucky. But, like, they're pretty creative lines that all lose to Surgical. And most Storm decks aren't playing Discard right now. Yeah, yeah, so there's definitely, like, but that hand you described, like, without Luris, that hand sucks. Like, one land, two LEDs, Wishclaw, Talisman, like, that hand's going nowhere fast without Luris. So, like, you're still dead to Force of Will, like, the way that you would be as a combo deck. Like, I I, I just, I'm saying that, like, Luris is not killing the format. Like, your line is super cool, and I actually think it's cool that that exists. And, like, it's also cool that, like, if you're just storming off with, like, mana to spare, you can, like, Luris for storm, refire a Lotus Petal for storm, and then just get them. But, like, I don't think that this thing is breaking the format at all. I do think there's a, a few, like, a few bits of advice. Uh, one, it makes Force of Willing a defense grid a lot more risky, or Force of Willing a Wishclaw Talisman. Uh, so if you do that, be prepared to get bit right in the butt. And two, I think the stock and force of negation is about to go up a little bit. Um, not a lot, but like force of negation, be, having the exile clause is slightly better. If these storm decks end up being super popular, I actually don't think it's going to improve storm combo that much with how good snow is. Like snow is still going to be the best deck in the format. So I'd probably focus on winning the snow mirror more than anything else. But if you want to beat combo, force of negation. I think... Luris allows a lot of really cool pivoting, which I don't know how much of that you're able to do now, but I can see so many games where like you're playing against Delver, they've countered your first two real cards that mattered, and then you just play this Luris that like maybe they bolted bolt boarded out some of their removal for, and then you just like attack them twice. You've gained six life, you bought a lot of time, and Luris, meanwhile, is helping you refuel. Um it's going to make your ad nauseums better. Um, I think it's going to do a lot of cool secondary things that aren't the primary reasons why you're putting it in the deck, but just end up like digging you out of really weird spots. I can't wait to cast an ad nauseum from like 26 life. I'll be high-fiving myself in my room. Like, I, I'm, I just can't wait. My record with ad nauseum is 39 cards. I can't wait to see if I can break it by getting up to like 29 life. Like, let's say my punch is like mana screwed or something. I'll just wait a couple extra turns trying to get up to 30. Um, what's the total converted mana cost of the deck? Like, I don't know that off the top What's the of safe number? Yeah, you're going to need to know these things. Write an article about it. All right, I'll get right on that. Uh, speaking um, of articles. Alex McKinley wrote one. Uh, you might know him as Vavirus or Vavarius, depending on how he likes it pronounced. But uh, he wrote an article that was released today, which is Tuesday for theepicstorm.com, all about Luris of the Dream Den and its application within the Epic Storm. Uh, you can read a couple of the highlights. Uh, there's some interesting things with in the article, such as Tormod's Crypt with Luris. It's a hard lock against graveyard decks. 
uh, Hope of Gearper against combo decks becomes a hard rock. So if you're facing blue-green Omni or ad nauseum tendrils, with Luris and Hope of Gearper, you essentially lock your opponent out for the rest of the game and they can't do anything while you attack them for four every turn. Yeah, I, like, pooped myself when I read that. That is such a cool interaction. Yeah, I mean, TES, as I've said, has always been a prison deck at heart, which is why Phil loves it so much. Um, but, you know, is what it be. I think I'm all out of things to say about Luris. Uh, if you're interested in more, make sure to check out Alex's article on theepicstorm.com. Um, yeah. All right, uh, so should we move on to Zerda the Dawn Waker? This card is cool. So this is the elemental fox thing. Uh, one colorless and then two, uh, the hybrid Boros mana. Uh, each permanent card in your starting deck has to have an activated ability, which that one is a bit of a tricky deck building cost. But the payoff is that you can infinite combo with a whole bunch of BS. I think that whoever made this at Wizards is just a really big Mozilla fan. And they wanted their browser to be a magic card. That's reasonable. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, so so we talked about the cost of making this your companion. What it actually does is abilities you activate that aren't mana abilities cost two less to activate. This effect can't reduce the mana in that cost to less than one. And it has one tap target creature can't block this turn. So a little line of flavor text there for legacy. But uh so the obvious go-tos are the monoliths, both Grim and Basalt monolith. So uh, the, these monoliths tap for three, and then they Basalt untaps for three, uh, which would cost one with this, and Grim untaps for four, which would cost two with this. So the monoliths make infinite colorless mana with Zerda around. So that's the obvious place to go. But what do you do with infinite colorless mana? Make a ballista right. laser! Pew, 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 yeah. pew! Right. Walking Ballista is, in fact, a permanent card with an activated ability or two. So a Walking Ballista is the answer to that question. The, the, the big question is, what else is in this deck? Because you can't play Chalice of the Void. Uh, a lot of these uh, like big mana, like ramp deck, mana rock decks that pay off somehow use Chalice to bridge the gap. But Chalice is a permanent without an activated ability. So... You're going to need a, a smarter deck builder than I to figure out how to break this thing. So I do have a tiny bit of advice. Mystic Forge seems really good when you have infinite mana. And it has an activated ability. It sure does. I don't know. Yeah, Mystic Forge would certainly be in this deck. You can go all sorts of deep with your win conditions. Like, you can win with literally anything. Like, you can win with Helix Pentacle. Like, it, it doesn't matter what you win with. The I'm not sure how you staple it together. Because with, like, the Grim Monolith sort of stuff that's ramping, you kind of want to play some big dumb stuff, but a lot of the big dumb stuff doesn't actually have activated abilities, right? So you can't play a good portion of the Eldrazi, for example, that you might normally use as finishers. Uh, you can use Planeswalkers, like Ugin, as payoff. Yeah, uh, so, interesting note, uh, it says each permanent card in your starting deck has an activated ability, not non-land. So most lands do have activated abilities, but like something like Vesuva doesn't. So uh, there are some additional... Even your mana base has to follow the rules of this one. Ooh. So, I didn't so that's consider that. Yeah, yeah I didn't really either. Cool. Yeah, so I, I don't know how bad that hurts anything, but like that probably nixes any sort of Cloud Post shell. 
Uh, but like Cloudpost isn't very good at casting a Boros Boros one creature anyway. So shuts off Ancient Tomb, City of Traders. Well, the mana abilities are activated abilities, right? But yeah, like yeah. Vesuva naturally doesn't have like a tap symbol on it. That's yeah. Oh, yeah. so that counts. My bad. I missed. Yeah, most la- most lands are fine, but you don't get okay. to Tabernacle or Vesuva. So uh, this would this would have to go into like this looks more like a painter card to me, honestly, than like a a post card. Grandson uh, so, for one mana seems pretty cool. Right, but guess who doesn't have an activated ability? Painter servant. Yep. So, so it, by painters, I mean like painter style deck, not obviously not painter, but like I don't know. Uh, it says your starting deck. You could always get painter with a Karn. Uh, that is true. Uh, if you have four Karns and painter in your board, you are allowed to do that. I'm challenging so, you, Roger Steady, right here, right now. That is your mission. Yeah, somebody out there, uh, make this happen. It, I don't know if it's good. Like, I like I don't know if it's going to break anything. I'm pretty sure it won't, but there there is a deck here. I'm just not convinced that it's better than the exi- existing decks that already do the same thing. Uh, Roger Steady on Moto plays Mono Red Painter with, like, Bowman Courier and Goblin Engineer and Goblin Balders. I think he might be up to the challenge. Uh, all of those have activated abilities, so he's he's still good. This is one of those cards where when I look at it, I go, all of the deck lists with this card are going to suck for at least two weeks. And then if someone figures this out, maybe it has potential. Well, I think our next card probably has more potential, if I'm being honest. Kenan, I probably pronounced that wrong, but Kenan Bonder Prodigy. Uh, one green, one blue for a legendary creature human druid that is a 2-2. Whenever you tap a non-land permanent for mana, add one mana of any type that permanent produced, and then five green, blue, look at the top five cards of your library. You may put a non-human creature card from them onto the battlefield and the rest on the bottom, which means you can, in theory, put like an Emrakul or a Gristlebrand into play. But honestly, that part of it's irrelevant. What you're looking at is the static ability here of doubling your mana with things like Arkham's Astrolabe. Uh, one mana make two seems pretty good. Yeah, turning Astrolabe into a ramp spell is kind of <laughs> bonkers. Uh, it Doubling elves, um, any deck with Green Sun Zenith would probably be interested in this because Zenith decks have mana creatures in them. That's just how decks are built. Um, the It also doubles uh, mana rocks like Chrome Mox, Lotus Petal. Uh, it does not double or it does it doesn't double anything it adds one so uh i i'm sure i've shortcutted by saying double but it it doesn't add one to led because led doesn't tap to activate so this i know sorry everyone yeah so there's a lot of uh a lot of things that this adds a mana to this also goes off with basalt monolith it does not go off with grim monolith because uh that doesn't net one it taps for four then untaps for four but basalt monolith will tap for four and untap for three so uh maybe there is a rug or bant kinnon zerda deck uh kinnon is kind enough to come with an activated ability that's mostly flavor text but it does check the box for zerda so i don't know uh someone someone go deep on that for me but i think more reasonably we're going to see this in green sensing effects like maverick might want this thing Maverick probably wants Oko these days anyway. It's not a huge stretch to want blue in your green deck. 
so uh, elves could play one. Um, the The activated ability is not flavor text in elves. Like if you get a a Birchler Ranger and a Cradle going with this, like you get to fire off the top of your deck looking for that Crater Huff for Progenitus or Arcan of Valor's Reach. Like there are real payoffs. And even if you quote unquote miss, you're still adding material to the board for your cradle. So it's a little bit out there, but I think, and I could be wrong, and I'm sorry for talking about this deck every single episode, but this could be a sideboard option for Blue Green Omni. Uh, while the static ability of Kinnon isn't as relevant, these pay seven mana to put a giant fatty into play possibly could be. Uh, most people don't leave in removal against the Blue Green Omni deck. So you can, in theory, pressure Planeswalkers or... I don't know. It's just a thought. I don't know. At 7, that seems a little deep to me, but like I understand the theory behind it. Yeah, yeah. I think that 7 is super deep. Uh, like Arcane Artisan out of Sneak and Show was like the juke you're talking about, but Sneak and Show played 8 payoffs. Uh, there are only 3 in the deck for Kinnon. So in the, the blue-green Omni deck, because it has to hit creatures. It's not non-human permanence if this could hit omniscience then maybe we're in business but i i think using carpet of flowers to cast your grizzle brand is is a better plan than using kinnon no man fuck carpet of flowers i know i like sang a song about carpet of flowers last time but now like goddamn leobold is everywhere and i was playing yes. four carpet of flowers in my enchantress fist list two main two side and like i got so fucked well phil yeah. one language two we told everyone how to beat carpet of flowers by telling them to play leobold we did ourselves in uh, yeah, we, the only reasonable conclusion is that everyone on Magic Online listens to our podcast and takes all our, our advice to heart. Wait, are you being facetious, Brian? No, I am 100% serious. I don't joke about anything. I'm a robot. Oh, okay. That's why you win at Magic so much. Yes, I am a Magic robot. I'm the deep blue of Magic. Wow, I'm the second person in this podcast to try to steal a nickname from Jarvis. <laughs> how is that a... <laughs> we're, we're trying king. to set the new record yeah Jarvis is both Deep Blue and Taiga King so uh, Phil by the end of this cast I need you to steal a nickname from Jarvis um, alright I, I got nothing going back to yeah, the card at hand you got time <laughs> uh, so one more thing I, I just want to quickly mention I don't want to go on like a crazy tangent but I'm in a number of legacy Facebook groups and somebody posted a screenshot of Kinnon when it was spoiled and they were basically like OMG, F this, F Magic, F Watsy. Why would they keep doing this to the format? The format is dead. I'm selling all my cards. And like, whoa, whoa, take a breath. This card is not that great. Like, it'll get played for sure. Like, there are cool spots for it. But like, Uro and Oko exist in like the same color set. And you're freaking out about this? I think uh, one of the saving graces of this card is that it does not work with Urza for other formats, mostly modern. Uh, that said, I did see some pros brewing on Twitter about how to turn Paradoxical Outcome into a better deck for modern. Uh, so this card is going to probably get banned somewhere, if I had to guess. Probably not Legacy, but we'll see. I, I don't know. Like I, I am not convinced that this card is bannable. Like There might be a Pioneer shell or like this turns out to be too good with like the eight elves and hydroid crisis, but I don't see this breaking modern or legacy. Like, just not even close. This is a two-two that's kind of hard to cast. It's it's color different color is its mana cost, and 
it, it just dies to a stiff breeze. Uh, it, it requires investment of other cards to make it do anything. Like, I, I just don't know. Like, I, I see the spots where it's good, but I, I'm I'm going to take the under on times this gets banned of zero. So just kind of one last thought on this card. Um, something I've been thinking about a decent amount. Is this like a fair or unfair card? Like, where, where is question. this going to see the most play? And I wish I would have so like thought about this ahead of time, but like we're doing it live. I think this is a fair card for Legacy. Like, the Legacy power level of the truly unfair things you can do is just bonkers. Like, like, like you can just put Ancient Tomb into play if you want double mana. And and this is a, a, a like, two drop that requires two colors of mana to, to summon. So, and it needs help to get anywhere. Like, uh, I'm just, I think that the decks that are going to get the most use out of this are going to be, like, the the Bant Maverick shells, where it's like they have Oko, and then they have one of these that they can Zenith for, and then like maybe once in a while, like in a particularly grindy game, they start like shooting creatures off the top of their decks to get thing get the game done. But or or like just pushing the it's another tool for elves if if elves is interested in blue mana, but elves is already a busted deck, and this is not more busted than Heritage Druid. It's just another option. So Phil, going back to one of the questions you asked, uh, like if this is a fair deck or a fair card or an unfair card, I think that's almost a little bit of an unfair question, just because with the way that magic works nowadays, is combo cards just aren't printed at the same rate as fair cards, and there's like a very large percent of the magic population that just won't play combo. Like combo players love combo, but we're such a small number of people, and I say we're because I'm one of them, but. Like, people just, like, we've talked about this on previous episodes, just don't jump and play Ad Nauseam Tendrils or Storm or whatever. Um, because there's a steeper learning rate to playing those decks. And if you want to play a card like Kinnon Bonder Prodigy, if you're familiar with fair decks, you're more likely going to play it in a fair deck. You're not just going to jump and learn how to play it in an unfair deck. Yeah, okay, I can buy that. And I think uh, to add to that, the the number of people who could truly find a broken shell for a card like this is even smaller. Like, uh, like uh, Callum Whitefaces, uh, he might do something busted with this, or like at least worth looking at. And uh, you need like a smart brewer. Like uh, in vintage, we have like Justin Ganari and uh, uh, Chubby Rain. Like those guys can just like see a card, see an engine watch all the numbers fly by and then like produce a 75 card deck list. That's pretty functional. And you, we need someone with those skills to point them in this direction and find something. I like how you called out Callum Smith as a like challenge that he's supposed to break this card. So you heard that Callum, you have to break this. Brian Koval's challenged you. You have to figure out how to solve this. He didn't even need to hear that. Like, I'm sure he already has a bunch of things. I don't know if he writes anything down or if it just, like, goes in the brain. Like, I don't know his process, but I'm sure he's already got something in the works for every single card we've mentioned. And some of the ones we haven't. Yeah, probably. So, why don't we talk about the next card, then? Sprite Dragon. This card is gas! Yeah, I'm really high on this card, too. 
And when I brought it up to people, they're just like, eh, we're a Storm Chaser Mage. What? Like, you're Storm Chaser Mage, you get to project with Days and Forcible, and all of a sudden your two-man investment's a 4-4 in turn three? Or, like, they're like, oh, but it's like a bad top deck like game. Most creatures in Magic are. Um, like, do you expect this thing to come off the top of the deck on turn 15 in your blue-red aggro deck and win? Um, like, I think that a lot of people in Magic build their decks and they lack focus. And that's, like, something that I've put a lot of thought into when I'm playing TES. Is like, you want to make your deck the most efficient at achieving its strategy. And if you're building a deck like Blue-Red Prowess, you shouldn't be planning for turn 15. You should be planning for your opponent to be dead on turn four because you have an 8-8 flying dragon. Um, that's my personal take on it. Don't yeah. know how you guys feel. I love this card. Love, love, love it. So it gives you a different angle of attack that Blue-Red Delver doesn't have access to right now, and that's like going tall in the long term. They have the ability to go wide and create a bunch of tokens via Young Pyromancer, but you don't have the ability to create a large, lasting threat. Um, you know, uh, Monastery Swift Spear, you know, gets big for a turn, and then it shrinks, and it gets big for a turn, and then it shrinks, and then you're usually out of gas. Whereas with this card, every single spell that you cast is building this to be a harder-hitting threat for the rest of the game. Uh, and I think that's yeah, incredibly I, powerful. Yeah, definitely. Like, Storm Chaser Mage has always been, like, the uh, the ex-girlfriend that Red Delver can't quite get away from. It's like, hey, we know it's not going to work, but, I mean, we could try again. It's been six months. Like, maybe we, let's take another run at it. Like, maybe things are better. And it's just not. But, like, Spite, Sprite Dragon hits as hard as Storm Chaser Mage on face. Just, like, on turn two, you pay your, your blue-red and attack. Your opponent takes one. That's true for both of these cards. And the thing that you said, uh, the thing where it's just like on turn three, you're like, all right, ponder, 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 attack for four, and then storm changes your mages back to one. You got to work back up. But Sprite Dragon's a four, four for the rest of the game. And like, that's, that's a very different type of snowball than storm chaser mage. So uh, I, I think this card is better than storm chaser mage, though. I, I'm not sure if that card is a card we want. But I do think this is better than Storm Chaser Mage, and Storm Chaser has been close enough to be worth a slot in some builds some of the time. So I think we're also missing out on a secret uh, line of text on Sprite Dragon. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, put a plus one, plus one counter on Sprite Dragon. What that means is when your opponent goes to Elk to Sprite Dragon, it's going to be an, a 12-12, uh, because it has counters on it. The turning it into a 3-3 elk does not remove the 9-counter Sprite Dragon head on it. So, thank you for the boost while I attack you on the ground now. Um, right. Yeah, so, it loses flying, but it gets bigger. It gets two points bigger. So, it's something to keep in mind that this is not a threat that will shrink when your opponent tries to oko it. Uh, I know that I'm so thrilled about this card, I might just buy four Japanese foils and put them in my Stormbinder for a rainy day. Like, I think that this could be an alternative cyborg plan to uh, storm combo decks. Uh, you can also cast it with Luris. That is true. Back in the day, I tried storm entity. This is just a strictly better storm entity. That's true. Also, this is like not relevant for our interests, but like this is an uncommon too. Like this is probably going to be like super fun to draft. Yeah, I'm, I'm stoked to play this card in, in various formats. Do you guys remember? You might not remember. Brian might. Um, 
back when Peasant was a format, not Popper, but Peasant, you have to play with five uncommons in your 60-card deck. This would be a sweet card in that format. So (laughs) stupid. I remember it, and it's stupid. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, my my college playgroup was briefly run by this super casual professor who, like, every week he'd be like, this week we're doing Extended Highlander. And next week, and, and like, you, so you'd have to like scramble and like buy cards and think of a list for extended Highlander. And then like, he's like, okay, next week it's build your own standard with these three sets. And it's like, dude, can we just draft and play extended? Like on alternating weeks, please? Like for for the love of God. So I, I have a, a sour taste about like weird deck building formats from that reason. But Whatever. Yeah, th- this would certainly be good in some sort of blue-red burn in a, this dead format that doesn't matter. <laughs> Alright, let's talk about Fiend Artisan. Do we have to? Uh, I think we do. Uh, this one's this one's pretty nice. This is uh, old uh, Tarmogoyf Sun Zenith. Uh, this is a... Uh, this card is blue-black... or green-black, green-black as, like, hybrid. Two green-black hybrid mana. So it's convert mana cost is two. It's a one one nightmare creature. It gets plus one plus one for each creature card in your graveyard. And for X, Golgari hybrid tap, sack another creature, search your library for a creature card with convert mana cost X or less, put it onto the battlefield, shop your library. Alright, so it's it's a two mana creature that gets bigger when cards in your graveyard. So that you've got a little Tarmogoy vibe there. And then it just like casts Green Sun Zenith. You have to sack another creature, but and but the creature you could search for doesn't have to be green. So you can just start zenithing things out of your plague deck. Plague Engineer! Any... <laughs> yeah, you can just go get Plague Engineer. I'm going to be the negative Nancy on this one. I think that this card on paper looks super good. And then in practice ends up being really underwhelming. Uh, so like when you play it, it comes down. and It's usually going to be a 1-1 or a 2-2 for most of the game. And then as the game progresses, this will be a more powerful card. So, like, this is definitely more of a, like, four-color loam-style card. But I still don't even think it's good enough there just because they don't play 20 creatures. Uh, I don't think that there's a deck in Legacy that this currently just, like, slides into and they're thrilled to have. I could be wrong, um, and I'm willing to admit that I'm wrong when that time comes. But I just think that, like, there's not really a home for this style card I'm looking at Elves and Maverick. Those are my, my, my calls where this slides right into the toolbox. Uh, maybe even better than uh, Kinnon. Like everything I said about Kinnon sliding into the Zenith package of those decks, uh, so does this, and it might be better. I think this card is pretty good in Maverick. So like you have, relatively speaking, a decent amount of kind of crappy creatures um, or situational creatures. Like, you have your mana dorks, you have your, your birds of paradise, your noble hierarchs, and then you have creatures like Mother Runes and Scrib Ranger, where they, they have very specific roles to fulfill, but those roles aren't always needed. And Fiend Artisan lets you turn those into your bullets or most relevant cards for your matchups. Um, yeah, like, anytime I play these Zenith decks, like, every turn of every game, you're just like, please draw Zenith, please draw Zenith. And, like, you can wish for more wishes. Like, you're breaking the genie code. You can just Zenith for Fiend Artisan, and then you have Zeniths forever. Like, I, I think that this... If this sticks around for a turn and you get to start doing stuff, 
like it, this is a good one. Th- this is that mid game threat where it's like, like if you're if you're familiar with Farazenith decks where like you've exchanged a bunch of resources, both of you are sort of just like puttering on edge, and it's like you rip that zenith, and it's like okay, what do I get? And like sometimes it's like Leovold, or like if you're big enough, like maybe you have like a Tatiana or or Titania. That's Actually, I, f- Titania. I thought of a deck I like this card in. I like it in Gak. Uh, it seems really good in there. Uh, I think the density of creatures is high enough for there. The sacrifice of creature ability, not super relevant, but maybe you can use it on a Stitcher Supplier. Seems a little bit better there, but even then, that deck is super tight on spaces. Uh, I know that sometimes they'll play like one or two Putrid Imps. Maybe this takes over those slots. I'm still pretty low on this, but I'd be happy to be wrong. Yeah, it's not going to be everywhere, but I think the decks that want it are going to be pretty happy with it. And by decks that want it, I mean Elves and Maverick. I also can't overstate how good it is to be able to get haste damage off an activated ability. So the ability to just like throw this thing down and then threaten activation for Questing Beast every turn is terrifying. So your opponent has to leave more blockers back if they want to play around that. And... Like, you also have terrifying bullets in the sideboards for, like, both fair and unfair decks. Like, you have things like uh, Containment Priest, Aether Sworn Canonist, Plague Engineer, uh, Knight of Autumn. Like, there's all sorts of situational bullets, and this is just more copies of those. I, I think this card is a slam dunk as a one-off in Maverick. Alright, I'm in for that. Let's Let's keep this list moving. We are, we got a lot to talk about. Next song of so- creation. Song. Who's going to sing the song? What is the song of creation? Do I, we know the song? I think Phil should do it. Song of creation. Da, 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 da. Don't copyright strike us. Beautiful. All right. So that's the song. could do like song. a Pink Floyd the Wall, the song of creation, I think. Uh, probably. I'll leave that to uh, the less serious legacy podcasts out there to sing a song while we're breaking the format. So Song of Creation is Teamer and One. So red, blue, green, one. It's an enchantment. You may play an additional land on each of your turns. When you cast a spell, draw two. And at the end of your turn, discard your hand. So here, here's the, the thing. Uh, it's easy to cheat with this card, like Suspend, Adventures, Companions, Flashback, Retrace, Dredge. There's tons of ways to like make sure you have spells at the ready to trigger this. And you, shredding through your deck in the Legacy card pool should not be difficult. What is difficult is that this is a four mana blue enchantment. So Red Blast, Mystic Dispute, uh, uh, just Spell Pierce. Like all of these things just make this card real bad. So uh, it, it's a powerful engine, but I don't know who's going to want it. Yeah, I think the last time we saw a deck like this was with Jeskai Ascendancy. And that card needed some extra help from something like Probe, uh, which was busted in the first place to really make it fire on all cylinders. Uh, so I'm super skeptical about this one. So, <clears throat> sorry, hitting puberty. Uh, I've noticed people talking about this card in like a sneaking show style list. And the problem with that is like, it doesn't make sense because you need fast mana to take advantage of Song of Creation if you're going to win in one turn. So you need something like Lotus Petal or Chrome Mox, or Mox Opal, or Mox Diamond. I think Diamond actually works the best out of all of the Mox in the Song of Creation, because it rewards you for playing more lands, and Song of Creation rewards you for being able to play lands since you get to play two a turn. But you have to keep on playing mana, 
So you can sit there and cast your faithless lootings or your brainstorms, but eventually you have to hit the point where you have more mana to play. So you have to have rituals. And what are you doing with these rituals? Um, or at least something that creates mana like a Lotus Petal. Um, and like that's not something like Sneak and Show style decks really do. So I've seen like people trying to brew like Rug Belcher with this, with no Goblin Belchers in it. Uh, so it's just like Echo of Aeon, Song of Creation, that eventually you win with a Storm spell. But is that good? Yeah, why are you doing that? Because you can? Like, that sounds worse than just Belcher. Yeah, I don't know. So, like, it's it feels very similar to, like, the Ruby Storm deck to me. And that's not a slate on Ruby Storm. I think that they're just very similar in how they're trying to achieve things. Right, uh, I'll agree with that. All right, on to the next one. I, speaking of Belcher, uh, we started to t- touch this a little bit earlier and uh, before we got back on track. Gyruda Doom of Depths. So, Gyruda Doom of Depths is four colorless and two Demir hybrid mana. It's a legendary creature, Demon Kraken. The companion rule is your starting deck contains only cards with even mana costs. And zero is considered even, FYI. Uh, And when Gyruda enters the battlefield, each player mills four. And then you can put a creature card with an even converted mana cost from among those cards onto the battlefield under your control. So we've seen some uh, Gyruda Belcher lists that... They basically just play every clone in Magic. Like they're most of them are even cost, and like you just power out a Gyruda. You can use LED, just like an opening hand of LED, LED, just a, a two a, a two card hand LED, LED could win on turn one uh, with Gyruda if it's your companion. So you mill four, you return a clone, you clone the Gyruda, you mill four, you return another clone which clones the Gyruda, and you just shred through your deck and you deck your opponent along the way because each player mills four and. Somewhere along the way, there's a Thassa's Oracle, if you want it. So you so, have to, like, what if you just hit, like, four lands? I guess it's Belcher, so, like, you're not going to hit, but, like, four spells that aren't a clone. I don't know. Yeah, I, again, this sounds worse than just actual Belcher. Uh, Belcher is a well-established archetype. Uh, a lot of work's gone into it over the years, and uh, this deck has the same problems that Belcher has, and a higher fail rate. So I also uh, like that I'm, it's a combo deck that loses the swords to plowshares. Right. It's a combo deck that loses to plow. It loses to any graveyard hate. It loses to force of will. It's basically just like oops, all spells in a different form. It's just oops, all clones. <laughs> so uh, I, I don't think that that's that great, but it is a thing you can do. I still expect to die to this. I, I still expect to come across this in leagues and just like, so I saw some people talking about possibly playing Garuda and Dredge. Um, I don't know how I feel about that, but it's something you could certainly try to do because, you know, double LED, you play this, you get to mill four, which is exactly what your deck wants to do. Um, you would have to make some concessions, uh, like not playing Troll, for example. That's a big concession. Or Stinkweed Imp. Uh, I think we killed this deck. The two best Dredge cards are just not allowed. I'm off it. That's pretty much all I have right. to say about that. But I yeah. think we missed a point on Song of Creation, by the way. And that uh, I think that even if Bolas's Citadel was good today, Song of Creation is probably slightly worse than Bolas's Citadel. But even if they were both good, 
I'm so skeptical to play a combo deck anymore that relies on a permanent to win the game after Force of Vigor's been printed. Like, even, like, Yawgmoth's Bargain, I'd be like, eh, well, I guess I can pay 16 life in response to the Force and draw 16. But you can't do that with these, so, like, you're going to put so much effort into getting these into play just to get hit by Force of Vigor the second you do anything. Yeah, it, it's a, a fragile thing that's hard to produce and hard to win with once it's there, so... Probably going to pass on that. You're probably a defense grid deck, too. Like, that's probably your angle of protection. In Gyruda? Yeah. Or in Gyruda, in, sorry. Yeah, yeah, so Gyruda, like, an advantage that a blue Belcher deck would have over red-green Belcher is it can protect itself with forces. But Force of Will and Negation are both odd costs. So you can't have Gyruda as your champion if you have odd cost cards in your deck. How I I guess you don't really need the champion. You could just play this deck with four Gyruda main, but then you have to like find her, and the LED plan doesn't work. So I I'm off this deck. It sucks. Let's talk about Ethereal Forager. This is our our delve one, right? Yeah, this is the delve Sky Whale. So delve is obviously one of the most busted mechanics ever made in Magic. You know, it's it's not at the top of the but it, it's pretty far up there. So this is four generic and then blue-blue for a 3-3 three, three flying with Delve. And when it attacks, you can return an instant or sorcery card exiled with it to its owner's hand. So I think this card is really kind of clunky. I don't want to discount Delve because that's super powerful. But this is something that requires a decent amount of setup to be good. And it doesn't just get back any instant or sorcery. It's one that was exiled with it. Um, so all in all, I find this one kind of clunky. Right. The things that enable Delve are fetch lands. Like that's fetch lands and cantrips. So like if you cast this thing on like turn three or whatever, you're going to exile like fetch land, fetch land, ponder, brainstorm. And then like if your three, three lives for a turn cycle and gets to swing, you get to ponder, put ponder in your hand. Like I, the payoff isn't even good. This card seems worse than Bedlam Reveler in basically every way. You also like lose the Lightning Bolt and Pyroblast, yeah. and it dies to almost all of the most common removal uh, outside of like yep. Abrupt Decay. Gets hit by Oko pretty easily, and then your card does nothing. Yeah, like if this has a home, it's not in like a Delver style deck. Like maybe, maybe this is the. Uh, the uh, blue-green Omni sideboard plan you were looking for earlier, Bryant. Like, maybe just bring in a couple whales, uh, eat a, eat your show-and-tells out of the graveyard, bash for three, regrow your combo. If there's a home, it's it's something like that. It's a sideboard juke. It's not it's not in your deck. So for so. the Eternal Glory podcast, whenever we've done a review episode, we always have, like, one big miss. I feel like this card could be our miss, but more than likely it's not very good. I don't, I don't either. This one, uh, this is kind of one of those cards that I expect to be surprised if I see it in play ever after the first two months this set is out. I'm honestly more excited about our next card. Can we go to that one? Yeah! General Kudro of Draneth. One white-black for a legendary creature that is a human soldier. Three, three power and toughness. Other humans you control get plus one, plus one. 
Whenever General Kudro of Duraneth or another human you control enters the battlefield, exile target creature from an opponent's grave. Or I'm sorry, exile target card from an opponent's graveyard. Two mana, sacrifice two humans. This is not a tap ability. Destroy target creature with power four or greater. So what this does, it helps beat Plague Engineer by antheming all your humans. It itself is a three three, so it's not going to die to double Plague Engineer either. Uh, it exiles an Earl from the graveyard. Or if for some reason you slowed down Red Black Reanimator long enough, every human you play now, especially with Aether File, can exile at instant speed. And then even so, you can blow up a Gristlebrand by sacrificing two humans. This card seems super sweet. Uh, I can't wait to see it as like a two of. Yeah, um, which tournament did Eddie Zamora win to make this his invitational card? I'm not sure. Uh, I think the, it was the tournament of our hearts. Oh yeah, that makes sense. He won that one a long time ago. Yeah, he, he's great. I I actually played his humans deck at Eternal Weekend last year. It, it was when uh, Rug Delver with uh, Ren and Six and Oko was the best deck by a lot, and it was obvious. And I just didn't want to be part of it, so I just uh, and I, I was already in the top eight of vintage, so I just like Yolo played humans. Uh, figured I'd get some easy rounds in. And the deck was surprisingly powerful, even in a field of Ren and Six, which is literally just like, destroy your deck, go. Uh, uh, starting on turn two, like, kill all your creatures and every land you play. So Humans was playable against Ren and Six, which is like literally the worst possible card that could exist against Humans. And it, it's got a ton of new toys in this set. So hopefully this thing gets some play, because I'm into it. The art's also super cool. The like the general looks like a villain out of Star Wars. Like I'd be stoked to play this. He looks like Doctor Robotnik with better clothes. Got the Chaos Emerald on the shoulder and everything. Yeah, he's ready to party. All right, uh, let's talk about another human. This will just be like a quick thirty-second thing. Uh, there's not a lot to say here. Uh, Kelsey and the Plague is red, white, black for a two-two legendary creature. Human Assassin. With Vigilance, Haste, it taps to ping a creature you don't control, and if it dies, you get an experience counter, and then it gets plus one, plus one for each experience counter you have. Boo! So I know the mana requirements here are super strict, but like I've registered Cunning Spark Mage or other similar pingers multiple times in Legacy deck lists with no shame, and they were actually quite good. So this is one of those things where, like, if I had a box of human cards that I would thumb through for metagame-specific options, this is one that, like, I would have a copy of sitting in that box that I might play someday. I do not think this card is good right now. Um, I don't think pinging X1 creatures is particularly relevant right now, but they may, there may come a time. All right, we've talked about Kelsian. Uh, next is Crystalline Giant. Uh, so there's this horrible sub-game in Vintage where any time a 3-mana artifact is printed, you have to consider if it's playable in workshops, because there's a good chance that it is. And, alright, so Crystalline Giant is a 3-colorless mana 3-3 artifact creature-giant. At the beginning of combat on your turn, choose a type of counter at random that Crystalline Giant doesn't have on it, from among Flying, First Strike, Death Touch, Hexproof, Lifelink, Menace, Reach, Trample, Vigilance, and plus one, plus one, and then put that type of counter on it. So you don't know what this card does when you cast it. And 
assuming it survives for 10 turns, you're going to have a 4-4 with all of those uh, text, with all of those keyword abilities on it. So I'm not sure if this breaks the mold enough to like get into that tier of playable artifact creatures in vintage shops. And it might, like people are going to try it, but I think it's a lot worse than ones that we already have. And in Legacy, we don't even have Workshop. So uh, people will probably try this in like uh, Ancient Tomb, City of Traders, uh, Cloud Post kind of shells. It is a colorless threat you can play, but it's not great. Figuring this out in paper is going to be very difficult because you're going to have to have like a D8 with you and be like, okay, well, one equals flying, two equals first strike. So three through eight. Uh, we'll do them in order, and then like you roll it two or three times. You're like, okay, well, all right, we'll we'll, we'll just say against hexproof this time. No, I I think what you do is you have four different bags of counters, and you have a different bag for each one of your crystal and giants. That's got to be the answer. All right, Phil wants to bring many bags to his magic tournaments, but I mean, yeah, that is a way to do it. Like if you have the little like punch out, uh tokens counters like word counters that come in the packs like if you just like put them in your hand shake them up and drop one out like i guess that's a way to do this uh this is a great hearthstone card but playing it in paper magic the gathering seems really awful i'll enjoy casting it on arena but in in real life not so much there was another complaint i saw on reddit that i mean i don't play hearthstone so i'm not super familiar but I guess uh, Wizards directly ripped off one of the ultimatums from Hearthstone. I have no idea. Oh, did they? I mean, like, when people say things like that, it generally doesn't make any sense because card games, like, the, they all, like, cards all have to do something and, like, within, like, variations of game mechanics, like, ultimately something's going to overlap. Like, uh, Onslaught came out around the same time as the Yu-Gi-Oh card game, and everyone was like, oh, they stole face-down creatures from Yu-Gi-Oh. And it's like, even if they did, so what? It's cool design space. So, like, Hearthstone is also a game of using creatures and spells to reduce your opponent's life total to zero, and you gain mana as you go, and mana is your resource. So, like, I, I don't know how close a card would have to be to a Hearthstone card for that to be considered quote-unquote stealing. It's like Hearthstone, there's literally a card in Hearthstone called Lightning Bolt that deals three to any target for one. Like, who's mad? That's just, like, good design. So, uh, I'm not super excited about that line of conversation. I, I don't think it goes anywhere. So, one other thing about Crystal and Giant that I missed the first time I read this card Um you get one of these counters at the beginning of combat on your turn. So if you pay, if you play this in main phase one, you get a counter on it that turn, even if you're not necessarily attacking with it. So the first time you attack with this thing, it has two of these abilities. Right. So I I saw a uh, a tweet from Rick Shea, who is a dear friend of mine, who said one of the most preposterous things about this card. He said he wished haste and defender were in the pool of things this could get. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, maybe in 1995 that would have happened. Like, I think in 1995, like, 
defender would have been like three of four possible choices <laughs> like because that's just how cards were designed but like these days cards are designed with like everything is upside like everything affects your opponents and not you or like your lords buff your creatures but not theirs and like uh, you remember drawbacks i i don't honestly it's been so long you remember like invasion block had the leeches that made all of your own cards cost more yeah, but you got, like, a two-mana 3-3 three, three first strike out of it, so that's just un- worth it. Absolutely worth it. <laughs> the secret to good deck building, Bryant Cook, is to play leeches in five-color decks. So, like, your only red card is the ruby leech, so you're just hyper-aggro and it doesn't affect you at all. But that's neither here nor there. That's an ancient conversation. Uh, back in the 1400s, this card would have had Defender in its in its random abilities it could gain. But it's only upside, and we've spent way too long talking about this card. That's not going to see like this card's on brand. Phil's pretty excited about the next one. Go ahead. All right, Phil, tell us about Lava Brink Venturer because you're going to play this. I am. So it's two colorless and a white for a three-three human soldier. When it enters the battlefield, you choose even or odd. Again, zero, still even, and it has protection from each converted mana cost of the chosen value. Uh, so just clearing the elephant in the room, this is not a Death and Taxes card. It super sucks in Death and Taxes. In Death and Taxes, you have things like Mom, your equipment, your Flicker Wisps that you're going to want to target this thing with. Uh, so like, this is not something that you want to be doing there. Uh, this is going to see play in some other white chalice shell, such as Soldier Stompy where it is like a soldier, so it's going to be uncounterable. You can play it on turn one or two, and it's kind of like a true name nemesis in that deck. So You stole the words out of my mouth, Phil. I did. I, I've always felt like true name should have been a white card, because it felt like a white ability protection from everything. And here we are, another three mana three axe with protection from blank. Protection from half of everything. Yes. Um... This card is super neat. There's some awkward things about it that I could spend a lot of time going into, but like I'll just stream with this and show it off in that way. Um, I'm working with a bunch of people to brew a deck around this card right now. Um, so I'll, I'll put my money where my mouth is and play a bad deck list that has this and uh, have a lot of fun with it. A friend of mine named Max Ansbro, he's uh, based out of New York City, unless he's moved recently, but uh, he... He's big on Soldier Stompy. Like, he has the deck, like, in original foil, and, like, it's gorgeous. And, like, that's just his pet deck. Uh, you may remember Max from top eighting Legacy Eternal Weekend with Splinter Twin a, a while back. Uh, he He's not afraid of a brew. And I'll be sure to get his thoughts about Lava Brink Venturer. But when I saw this was a human soldier, I was excited for him uh, vicariously. It's, like, neat because, like, you put a chalice on one and then you put this on even and it's relatively difficult to, like, actually kill from there. Um, and, like, putting chalice on one is something you would naturally want to do in these sorts of decks anyway. But if you pick even and you have chalice on one, then, like, Oko costs three mana. So, like, there's still definitely some awkwardness there. But um, this card's pretty strong in very narrow places. Right. If you've ever played with True Name Nemesis, you're familiar with what this card's going to do when it's good. And if you've ever played with Tarmogoyf, you're familiar with what this card's going to do when it's not so good. <laughs> what do we got next? Uh, Lucka, Coppercoat 
Outcast. Oh, Phil's EDH card. Oh yeah, this this is a meme deck card. So, just to read the relevant part, it, it's a five mana Planeswalker in red, and you can minus two to exile target creature you control, then reveal cards from the top of your library until you hit a bigger creature and put it onto the battlefield. So the idea with this is that you can use it with some Goblin Token or some Mana Dork and then turn it into an Emrakul. Unlike a lot of the other Polymorph effects that just bring you into another creature, this one is specifically a creature with a higher converted mana cost. So if you're just like playing a bunch of Mana Dorks or something and then you fire off this thing, it hits your big creature 100% of the time. So if you're looking for something spicy to do, you know, throw this and Nahiri and some Emrakuls into a deck and have a blast. All right, so the next one, uh, we're, we're starting to wind down our list here. I'm excited. This, is, this has been a lot. Uh, Luminous Broodmoth. So Luminous Broodmoth, when a creature you control dies, it comes back with a, or without flying, a that creature comes back with a flying counter on it. Uh, it's a white, white, two, flying, three, four creature. So the trick here is to make sure your creatures cannot get flying or flying counters, and then the creature can come back forever. So something like Solemnity, where you can't have counters put on your creature uh, with like a uh, Fanatical Firebrand or Croxa, or uh, I guess in the Legacy card pool, Mog Fanatic would be more appropriate. Like, you can, you know, sack your Mog Fanatic to ping, it comes back with a flying counter, but it can't have a flying counter, so you ping again, and it comes back infinite damage. Um, there's there's a blue enchant world from Homelands that also says creatures can't have flying. That, that combos with it too. It costs one more mana, and it requires a second color off the Solemnity. So, th- this is just like a combo that exists. I don't think it's going to be good in Legacy, but it's there. Yep, this is one of those cards where if someone put it into play against me, I'd be like, yeah, okay, that's not too crazy, um, but I don't expect this to do much. Yeah, I'd be like, that's cool. Swords to Plowshares. Nice four drop. All right, so I don't think we need to talk about that a whole lot. Uh, the The most playable card left on our list, I think, is Sea Dasher Octopus. Uh, this is a 2-2, a, it's blue-blue 1-2-2 two, two with Flash, Whenever this creature deals combat damage to a player, draw a card. It also has Mutate for a blue and one. So you can mutate this onto a non-creature, or a non-human creature with Flash, and it becomes a uh, a curiosity. So I'm not sure if, like, Blue-Red Delver or this, like, Blue-Red prowess deck that we've been talking about would want this. Unfortunately, every good one drop in those decks is a human, uh, the Swift Spear and the Delver. So it, it's going to kind of be tough to like curve into this. You need some good non-human ones to really snowball a game. But it, the ability to deploy draw a card with Flash it, is certainly worth looking at. So of note, Things like Ninja of the Deep Hours see a real non-zero amount of legacy play um, in the like Yuriko Ninjas deck. Um, this doesn't have synergy with Yuriko specifically, but otherwise this is like kind of on theme for that deck. I don't know that they need more redundancy, um, but like there's a home for similar cards like this, so this isn't crazy. And who doesn't yeah, love and the new also- Bestow? 
Mutate's yeah, a pretty Bisto. cool ability. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mutate, slightly different than Bestow, but still cool. I guess we haven't talked about Mutate. Uh, so the way this works is that if you cast the spell for its Mutate cost, put it over or under target non-human creature you own. They mutate into the creature on top, plus all abilities from under it. So if you mutate your Tarmogoyf, if, if you put Sea Dasher Octopus under Tarmogoyf, it'll be a Tarmogoyf with whenever this deals damage, you draw a card. If you mutate it on top of Tarmogoyf, I believe it will be the same thing. <laughs> is that accurate? <laughs> Does it gain the power and toughness setting ability? Maybe I picked a bad Tarmogoyf is like the worst example, right? Because it has a characteristic yeah, I, I went defining hard ability and characteristic <laughs> defining abilities ignore the normal things that Mutate would be doing. Okay, so uh, I'm off it. Um, never mind the Tarmogoyf example. Ask your favorite judge about that one. But uh, basically you can stick this onto a thing or you can make a thing into this uh, based on what you want to do with your life. But uh, the ability to flash in a, uh, a meaningful aura is what I'm talking about. Um, a famous non-human creature that would like to wear an octopus as a hat is True Name Nemesis. Uh, that, that's, that's basically the one that you might want to run away with, but... This is probably still worse than like something like Umazawa's Jote if you're trying to make your true name bigger. So for what it's worth, it does get it through Plague Engineer. Um, I mean, it's unique, but yeah, that's true. If you mutate, if your opponent puts true or uh, Plague Engineer on the stack when you have true name nemesis and you mutate C Dasher Octopus on top of the true name, you now have a two-two octopus creature with protection from your opponent. And draws a card when it connects. So that's really interesting. That's a reason you would mutate onto the top. So that's pretty cool. So the last card is Of One Mind. Uh, two and a blue for a sorcery. This spell costs two less if you control a human creature and a non-human creature. Draw two cards. So it's Divination with Upside. I've seen some crazy takes about this card. So I personally don't think this is very playable. Uh, but I've seen people say this will be the next banned card in Legacy, which makes my eyes pop out of my head. Fuck. Uh, they're like, yeah, it works <laughs> with Young Pyromancer and Dreadhorde Arcanist. But if I'm playing those cards, why am I not playing a card that works with my Arcanist? Um, I just don't think that this is a <laughs> Legacy playable card. And like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, so uh, when I saw this card, I got excited for about a quarter of a second until I remembered how the magic rules work. This is a great example of if things were different, they wouldn't be the same. Where, So what my brain did was Insectile Aberration is a human insect. That's a human and a non-human creature type. However, they are on the same card. So it doesn't do what my brain briefly wanted it to. You do need a whole separate creature card in play with a different non-human creature type. So uh, unfortunately, you can't just flip your Delver and then go off with off of one mines. Uh, you do need a second creature. Uh, Young Pyromancer is the most exciting because it is a human shaman that makes elementals. So like uh, Young Peasy, Brainstorm, of one mind, of one mind is cool. But like, what if they swords the plowshares, your Young P in response to the Brainstorm, and then your, deck, your hand is just full of divination and legacy. So uh, this takes some setup and the payoff is like not super exciting. I think this is a classic example of like, 
trying just a little bit too hard to jump through hoops to draw cards when you could just be getting your opponent dead. Yeah, th- this is like a very Honorog kind of thing of like a, a card with weird conditions to tr- get card advantage is printed in a commander set or something and Honorog shows it into Miracles. So that that might be where we are with this. Uh, someone's going to try this. Someone's probably going to win some games with it. And then the community at large is going to say this is actually not where we want to be. All right. Well, I think that wraps up our spoiler episode. Um, does anyone have anything else they'd like to share? Uh, no, that that was a lot. I'm I'm excited we got it all out there. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to playing some really bad brews on stream uh, that include many of these cards. So from what I'm told is that this will likely premiere Friday. That Thursday, the day before this releases, we will get our first taste of playing with Ikora, aka Luris. Uh, I'm pretty excited. I'm also wondering, does that mean I can play Lurus in the PTQ on Thursday? Maybe. That's that's something you're going to want to find out. I'm not a doctor. I don't know these things. Thanks for listening, everyone. (laughs) 